and welcome to Machine Learning Engineered. I'm your host, Charlie Yu, and every week I talk to an exceptional data scientist, AI researcher, or software engineer to discover how they bring cutting edge research out of the lab and into products that people love. Before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to Effective Altruism and the Giving What We Can pledge. I'm not getting paid to say this, but I think these ideas are so important that I want to get the message out. If you're listening to this podcast, most likely you are well into the 1% in the world. By pledging to donate just a small fraction of your income to the most effective charities, you can save the lives of dozens of people living in extreme poverty reduce unnecessary suffering in factory farms, and improve the long-term future of humanity. Join me and over 4,900 others who have pledged to donate over $1.8 billion over their careers by going to givingwhatwecan.org. And with that, let's get on to the show. My guest today is someone I'm grateful to be able to call a close friend. He was formerly a PM at Microsoft, lead forward deployed engineer at Analytic, and is now a technical program manager at Google Payments. Please welcome Jordan Dunn. All right, Jordan, thank you for coming on to the Machine Learning Engineered podcast. It's great to have you. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. The question that I'm going to start off with everyone is, how were you first exposed to computer science and what made you decide to pursue it as a profession? So I had done some programming in middle school and in high school. Um, I think my father had bought me a Python learn to code games book, Um, but I never really considered it as a career until college. If I'm totally honest, I started as a mechanical engineer and then I got tired of it and it was faster to go and graduate with a computer science degree. So I did some work on shuffling my major and ended up graduating uh, about a year early just because it was a simple coursework. But it was an interesting, interesting switch for sure. Yeah, it's always funny. I occasionally forget that you had started out as Mackie until you bring out these 3D printing projects. And I remember that you're extremely competent with CAD as well. Yeah, I think I'm as good as I could be without actually doing it for a living. But um, it's a fun side side hobby. I definitely still get a, kind of a mental uplift or morale boost from doing more um, mechanically oriented things. So that's, that's more my hobby now, um, even if it's not my career. And one of the things I'm fascinated about is the parallels between software engineering and quote unquote normal engineering. And as an engineer, you went through the, those courses. Do you think that software engineering actually is engineering? I would actually say no. I I don't know where I heard this, but there was an interesting comparison between different engineering disciplines and computer science where um, an engineering discipline, you should be able to calculate a safety factor. So we have the concept of a, a bridge, right, or a truss. And you know 
And you can calculate um, and add estimations where you need how much that trust will be able to bear. Um, but if, uh, a corollary might be, uh, what are the odds that Twitter will go down tomorrow? There's like no amount of work or estimation that you could do where you'd have a reasonably high level of confidence in your answer to that question. So I guess a, an interesting follow-up would be, what is the last time that software engineering was engineering uh, with this kind of mindset? And I think the Apollo program is actually a really good example of that. Uh, the Apollo program had, I think, only a couple of errors in their entire C code base uh, throughout the entire program. And I feel that they would definitely be able to say whether or not an error would happen. And they could actually probably compute a safety factor for their entire system. So as, as things get more complex, it's more of a... Um, more of a challenge to call it engineering because it's not as certain how safe it is. Hmm, that's interesting that you point to the Apollo program as something, as an example of something that might've been, might've had a safety factor built into it. And it's also interesting that it seems that now with things like a move towards more formalized abstractions, like functional programming and formal verification, do you think that we can maybe get back to it being more of an engineering discipline? I think we might be able to in certain areas. I guess um, the challenge would be there are many people who have the full stack involved. Uh, like the number of times we have an interesting problem with an Intel chip or with some integrated circuit causing an issue. So sure, you might be able to go and say, hey, if this, if this Haskell executes correctly, then that atomic part of an overall system might be considered engineering. But, or, or maybe on the firmware level, for example, you'd be able to say that this is uh, pretty well locked down and that you can trace everything and you know the, the failure rates of specific transistors and you'd be able to calculate something. But uh, I guess I'd counteract with, if you're building anything with AWS on it, for example, uh, no matter how much of the other aspects are functional or within your scope, it's a little hard to build in the failures of other people's systems and anything more than a like kind of a guess and check uh, kind of a method. Mm, that's a really good point. All right, now I, let's move on to away from engineering itself and towards what you actually do, which is product management. So first off, how would you define product management? I think product management and program management are kind of disciplines on a spectrum. There's a desire to first on kind of a more product end of the spectrum, build something that doesn't exist yet. And then there's a desire on the program management side of things to scale something that exists to more people, more things, more scale. And I would say that the overall objective of both of those disciplines is to kind of provide the justification and guidance and framework around finding something that's useful and making sure it gets built. So it is an interesting discipline in that you don't really build stuff yourself oftentimes. And so you spend a lot more time working with people or trying to build a team or trying to define what is needed as opposed to actually building the thing, uh, which makes it challenging and, and fun in different areas. And this seems to be a role that is specific in software. Why do you think that is? Uh, that's interesting you say that. Um, I'm not sure I agree that it's specific to software. Say you're prototyping a backpack or a tent. 
would we consider the person going through the process of helping design a prototype, building a prototype, getting feedback on the prototype, and then iterating on the prototype? Would we call that person a product manager? Or, or I guess if not, what would we call that person? Just a designer? Hmm, that's an interesting point, actually, that, yeah, it might, the role exists. It's just not, uh, it's just not called the same thing. But I guess moving back to um, when a lot of people say product manager nowadays, especially in our circles, they are talking about software projects, right? I, I guess what's interesting there is there's a need to build things and the people who are good at building things are very specialized oftentimes. You'll have people who are really good at firmware. You'll have people who are really good at building Windows applications or building iOS applications. And I think that the uh, kind of landscape lends itself towards specialization in specific software stacks or specific uh, kind of use cases. And I think that software would certainly be a challenge if you didn't have someone advocating for the whole as a program, right? If Netflix, for example, were just a, a group of, hey, I'm going to build an iOS app and I'm going to build a Windows app and I'm going to build a, a web app uh, to be able to stream movies. That's not a cohesive whole unless you have someone advocating for that. So maybe it'd be more accurate to say in software, there's a large need for product management because the specialization and the construction of something like that, as opposed to a tent, uh, means that there's not someone advocating for the whole unless you have a specific role for it. Yeah, I've seen various justifications similar to that where people will say, yeah, going back to the example of a tent, its complexity is being a physical object is constrained essentially, but like you said, something like Netflix or all of Microsoft Office, these are just programs of nearly unimaginable complexity. One person, I think literally, is not able to imagine and understand every single part of this. Maybe the just faster iteration time or computer science or for programming in general lends itself towards, towards needing this, this role we call product management, um, where maybe if an individual had three months or so on the time to build a tent and iterate on it, it wouldn't be that challenging uh, or it'd be more feasible for one person. But in the case of software, the divide and conquer and the specialization in what are we selling um, needs a little bit more of a, of a specific role. You moved from mechanical engineering into computer science to graduate as fast as possible. At what point did you realize that you wanted to go down the route of being a PM instead of a developer? So in college, uh, and you were in it, so we had this opportunity together. We did a lot of consulting work uh, as a part of um, the Inventors Guild. And the focus around that group was helping student entrepreneurs and helping other people in the local like tri-state area go and develop their thing to a point where they could get, um, get seed funding or series a funding. And it was a really interesting time because you both don't have a nine to five job. So you're looking for fun things to do and you're an engineering student with a plethora of resources and time to be able to do things that interest you. 
And I guess I noticed in that process that I both enjoyed solving large problems that required a team of people and that I could find and work with people who were so more skilled in their discipline than I was. So it was just an interesting time to go and, hey, I'll do more program management or more product management uh, to the ends that I can work with people who are far better than me at actually building something. Um, and there's still a, a part of me that misses being able to sit down and make progress on a project as an individual contributor for like, Hey, I have three hours that's free and I can make progress. And so you almost give up the part of you that says, I like building things on my own and you gain, but I can build things that are so much more large or impactful or challenging because I'm working with a team and not myself. Um, so I think I went through that. Uh, kind of process in in college where I just found myself very much more enjoying working with groups than I did working on my own. And I even have this challenge now. It's I would love to do more programming, but unless I can solve something like a problem I have with my own effort, it's a little bit more challenging for me to go and actually sit down and feel motivated to do it. So if it's a note-taking app or if it's um, building an interesting piece of software to help 3D print something, then I'm all for it because I can take an atomic problem, solve it on myself, ship it, and be happy with the result. But uh, if it's a little bit larger, if it's outside my skill set, uh, it's far more fun to do it with other people. So I, I usually form form teams or find others who are doing that uh, and work with them instead. Hmm, yeah, interesting. I'd actually never thought of the potential. I guess, dilemma of, yeah, not being able to ha yeah make that individual contribution. That's really interesting. But yeah, at the same time, it also lets you, you're kind of like the, the orchestrator of a lot of these extremely larger projects. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's really, really smart and good for people. And I'll use myself as an example. I do mechanical engineering on the side and I go have interesting hobbies so I still get that fulfillment from actually building something with my hands. And so I don't get that out of work because I'm more programmer product management, but I get it out of my hobbies and I still think it's an important part. So not at all that you should fully abandon that um, if you enjoy it, <laughs> but it, it is a downside of, um, of working as a programmer or product manager. You're in college and you realize that you think that this would be something that you're good at slash enjoy. Was Microsoft the first place where you had gotten that formal, I guess, training and experience in it? I would probably say yes. I think that when you're doing consulting, you wear a bunch of hats. And some of those hats might be around working with a client or defining a need or scoping out a solution. So those are, to a degree, program management or product management. I would say that Microsoft was certainly the place where uh, that, that hat you were wearing has a name and it has expectations and it has people who are very good at it, who are willing to help you learn. Um, it is interesting though, seeing how Microsoft treated it because Microsoft treated the, both the create something new and the get it shipped as part of the same role. They just called it a, a technical program manager and, or just a program manager, I believe. And it was interesting because you go and you actually think about how a user would use a thing. Uh, or design a feature. And then once you have that, you pass it by engineering and you get 
sign off and you get approval and agreement on the approach. And then you actually move towards the, okay, let's build that. So the tracking of it and the delivery of it was still owned by the person who designed it. And that was really interesting and challenging because a lot of other places don't have that. Uh, A lot of places would consider that not fully product because project management is not traditionally a kind of a product discipline in some areas. So it was a lot of fun and you felt a lot of ownership around the feature that you shipped. Um, but it was certainly an interesting way of, of organizing their company to have those roles under the same uh, person. Yeah, I guess uh, I've never actually thought about the, or I didn't know that there was a distinction between uh, product and like the role of a product manager where you're designing new things versus that of a project manager. So where is a program manager the a synonym for product manager or is that different entirely? I would say that the inventiveness, I guess, is what's missing from project management as opposed to um, program management. Maybe a good example of a project manager would be kind of like an event planner. It's you've done this a lot. There are no new problems. You need a venue. You need a caterer. You need the people to attend and you need to know where they sit. And that is a pretty cut and dry um, process that doesn't involve much change off of the last time you did it. And then the, the next step would be more of like a program manager, which is you need to go and, um, hey, we're shipping a new feature. Well, we've shipped features before. There's kind of a process around how you get agreement or get consensus or um, figure it out. But there might not be as much inventiveness as, oh, we're building a new entire product or a new entire thing. So there's a little bit of we need to solve on the fly and there's a little bit of we need to get something across the line. So it's like project management plus plus. And then if you fully remove the ship this thing component, then I would say you get into what a lot of people call a product manager, which is defining what you can build uh, within a certain uh, degree of what's possible, but more defining what you should build and then using other people or helping a team um, get that actually built could be more project management. And in the past, I've heard you say that effective PM is essentially leverage on your developer team. Can you expand on what you mean by that and how you go about trying to increase that leverage? For sure. I think the, the thing that good product management does is it meets people where they are and it helps define the goal and get everyone on the bandwagon. And there's different levels of detail and different levels of investment that specific parties will have on your product. And you need to be able to convince people that it's a good product or it's a good, um, a good use of time. So when you're talking to marketers, for example, you might be, Oh, this is going to be valuable to this particular customer segment. And this is how I'd sell it. And this is how we uh, compare against other people in the market. When you're going and talking to an engineer, it's, oh, we have many different things we could do. And of the things we could do, this is both technically feasible. And we also have a good amount of business need or business reason behind doing it. And when you're talking to other folks like legal or other folks in the, um, like the C-suite, you're using a little bit of both, right? It's, we can sell it and I've talked to marketing and we can build it. And I've talked to engineering 
And we should build it because this is a good fit for our company and a good fit for your team. So you could see how if you didn't really have that, that consensus or if you didn't have someone who owns it and shepherds it, then it'd be a little hard to figure out what to build because, and we've seen this, right? It's like marketing wants to sell everything. Um, and engineering's like, oh, maybe I want to go and work on my tech debt for five months. Well, there has to be a good split between that. And both of those are important. Uh, and you need both of those teams to work together. But without a, a strong um, proposal as to what you should do, it's a little hard to get agreement and it's a little hard to actually build things. On the specific to engineering side, I think that there's also a challenge on recognizing that teams have different strengths and you have a certain number of like front end engineers or people who do UI or back end engineers going and trying to build something. Uh, it can be challenging to get them all to agree on, on what to build and get them all to work together and plan it all out and convince everyone that this is a good use of their time. So that's where a lot of, of product management would go. And even in smaller companies, you won't have someone with a name product manager. It's oftentimes the, the CEO, right? It's, hey, this is what I want to build. And this is what we think we should build. And you're both taking input and you're collecting insight from people on your team. But eventually, someone's got to propose a thesis and someone's got to propose a plan. And you can have that shot down or adjusted or fixed or otherwise get input from everyone. But you have to be working off of something. And that initial straw man, that thing that you propose is where product is really valuable because at least now we have something to discuss. Now we have something to uh, tweak and improve and iterate on. It's far more defined than just hoping that something coalesces from the primordial soup of your company uh, into something that's sellable and useful in the market. Yeah, and I think that's a really great explanation, especially the part about the job being a lot of it being building consensus, especially I know that there's a common stereotype that engineers are quite hard to get along with and very uh, disagreeable. So I can't imagine that that's always uh, an easy job. Yeah. I, I don't know if I would say that, uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll rephrase that. I've had the pleasure of working with engineers who were very much oriented towards shipping things and being useful. Um, I think that the things that make Things that make me frustrated or engineers frustrated is actually pretty uncommon. It's like if you find yourself doing something eight times and it's not automated and that doesn't drive you crazy, then maybe you're not fit for software engineering. Um, but the, the idea of knowing that your effort will not be wasted is, is really important. If you go and you spend six months of your life building a really awesome widget and then it fails in the marketplace, you can see how that would disillusion you towards building what marketing asks for next time. Um, or if every single time there's an outage or a problem with your product, it comes back to, oh, engineers didn't build it well, then that would also be frustrating. So a, a good part of the, the benefit of product management is um, we've all kind of agreed across the company, this is what we'll build. And we can build a ship together and try to make the ship sail. And it's not necessarily any particular group's fault if it doesn't work, right? It's an opportunity to iterate on it more. And I find it's really easy to go and convince people to hop on board with you if you're really clear about expectations and you're really clear about why you think this will work and you see that broad support within a company uh, for a particular thing. Um, and if that's missing, then yeah, you build one too many things and it doesn't work. And then you're, Oh, why did I build that? Like, why am I doing that? If 
there's no guarantee it'll work on the back end. And speaking of the relationship between PMs and engineers, what are things that engineers can do, I guess, to to kind of make your life easier so that it is so that everyone can move in that same direction? I definitely love working with engineers who have an appreciation of business context. And I think that it's really interesting to actually go and have very passionate discussions with engineers talking about why should we build this or how would we build this? Um, Because at the end of the day, they're incredibly smart people and they've chosen to specialize in a thing, but you should be working with intelligent people who have opinions on a lot of stuff. So I think expressing an interest and expressing a desire to know the business context is a really nice thing to hear from engineers that you work with. I think on the product side, there's also a little bit of trust building. I think coming from a computer science background and being able to like, yes, I have written software and yes, I have on my own done consulting projects that involve me writing code. That brings a little bit of a, um, it, it helps with the relationship between product and software engineering. If everyone is at least somewhat technical and then the, the job of a product manager sometimes becomes every half year or maybe once or twice a year, you go and you say, yeah, I know this doesn't look possible, but it would be really great if it were possible. And let's try to figure out a way to make it possible. So pushing the envelope on the product side and having the context of what is possible and not possible on the engineering side and having the um, kind of camaraderie and the team that trusts your competency in both the product and the software domains um, makes it a lot easier for you to convince um, people to do things that are hard because they have a lot of business um, utility. Yeah, I think that point about having the technical context as a as a PM is super important for, like you said, building trust with engineers. At least in in my experiences with some of some non-technical PMs, it can be quite frustrating when you're trying to explain to them exactly why something like literally physically cannot be done. And uh, that it seems that more and more places are moving towards exclusively technical or PMs with technical backgrounds. Are you seeing that as well? I think it depends on the industry. Um, and I've, I've done a little bit of um, kind of healthcare startups, some of which were mostly technical risk and others that were mostly business risk. And I would say it depends on the industry. In something like healthcare, there's only six major health insurance companies, for example. And there's only hundreds of large hospital systems So in certain cases, the job of the product manager becomes more, far more uh, uh, political, by which I mean like networking, uh, than it is product design. And so in in certain cases, it makes more sense for that to be uh, probably less technical. If you can only specialize in something and in healthcare, it's really important that you have relationships with hospitals, then it would be totally possible for someone from a medical background or someone from a... Uh, pharmaceutical background to be a really successful product manager in that in that scenario. If we compare that to more of a, a technical side, if you have a 
company where all of the risk is business or sorry, all of the risk is on this kind of a technical risk. It's, is it possible to build this? Then it's really hard for someone from a from like MD background to know, can we build this? And that's a scenario where having a more technical program manager or product manager would be really useful because you need to temper the, this would be really valuable if I had a black box that did this thing with the, oh yeah, but can you actually build a black box like that? I think another area where product managers don't necessarily need to be as technical would be um, kind of marketing. You can come up with many, many apps like Snapchat or Instagram where, or even Uber. You could probably do that with a small engineering team in like a month. So there's no technical risk. There's a lot more, how do we get users? How do we go and grow? How do we go find a way to market this thing? And so you could totally see trading a product manager who was more technical for trading up to a product manager who's more savvy with marketing or savvy with advertising or savvy with um, like working with local municipalities and instead divesting that into a CTO or into a tech lead, the responsibility of getting something passed. I would say in summary, it's pretty dependent on your industry and pretty dependent on your product. And what are the risks to your business as far as what the product manager should probably specialize in? Mm, yeah, that's super interesting. And it does bring, it does give me a, especially a, a broader context because having only worked in yeah, enterprise software, almost, yeah, all of our PMs are technical and there probably is a really great reason for that because there are enterprises using our software with their software. So that does make sense. It's way easier to, in a software tech kind of a company, keep a really great culture if most of your product managers are technical, because it's so much easier to get that camaraderie and that agreement and the respect, the mutual respect between, yes, I know this is hard, but yes, we should build this. Um, so it's not at all to discount the fact that sometimes having only technical product managers is useful, but it's, it's uh, not a complete rule, I would say. And then going back to the distinctions that you made between different types of, I guess, risk, uncertainty in, in product management, how do you view the addition of machine learning systems, data science problems, where it's not necessarily possible to understand if something is feasible or not? Yeah, it is. It's a huge challenge. I think that I think this is also where a product manager is actually really, really, really useful um, because we talk about the product manager kind of being in between ability to implement, ability to sell, right? And that that gets challenging with machine learning problems because you're you're like learning along the way. Um, you'll try to go find training data. You'll try to build a product and engineering will, will put together models that might be able to do a particular thing, but you probably won't know if it's possible to get the kind of success criteria when you start a project. It's also difficult with marketing or with like C-level buy-in because everyone hears machine learning and they think, Oh, that's great. Fantastic. I can go and uh, just slap ML on my product and it's already smart. Like, uh, Hey, this has a, uh, a proprietary engine. It's like, okay, yeah, a proprietary engine can include like a spreadsheet. So 
it doesn't necessarily mean that ML is a good fit for every product. Stepping back though, with machine learning specifically, the other hard part is being able to explain why something's hard. And this is where being a technical product manager can be really, really useful. For, for some of the projects I'm on, for example, we're doing experiments and you can only do so many experiments at a time. The more experiments you do or the more um, hypotheses you have for a machine learning team, oftentimes the less significant data you have or the less statistical significant results you'll have because it's a divisible resource data. And so there's a little bit of a prioritization step that has to happen on the product level as far as these are the things that are important. These are the things we should build, work with machine learning engineers to go and prioritize the experiments they're doing um, to be able to actually actually ship something. Um, that's a lot of just off-the-cuff responses. I'm not sure I specifically mm -hmm. answered your question, but it is an interesting space. Yeah, I guess I would like to to focus on specifically the the challenge of if you're approaching a or you're trying to build a new product and like you said said before if if we could just do this this thing that we don't know is possible it'd be grand right but when it goes into doing leading people to do the research itself a lot of pm at least from the surface level looks like setting timelines, making estimations of how long things will take, uh, communicating all of that to the various stakeholders. How can you even do that in something as variable as machine learning? I think the first step is trying to define the problem space. Let's say we're trying to um, make an app that can detect what type of bird you're looking at. Um, you can define the problem space as far as like, what's the, what's the success criteria here, right? It's a certain, Hey, we can detect these couple of different birds in this amount of time. When you go and you actually work with the machine learning engineers, uh, it's interesting because a lot of them come from a research background. So one of the first problems you'll have is separating the useful business things from the fun research things. Uh, it'll be incredibly common that the most interesting thing will be um, completely orthogonal to actually making money at the end of the, the train. So I guess the, the challenge that you'll have oftentimes on the product side is um, you'll be prioritizing, we want A, B, C, and D. And you'll be trying to convince people and get consensus with your machine learning engineers to go and work on them in that order. And if for some reason it's especially difficult to get one of those, then the prioritization and the, what are the timelines there and what are the challenges on the actual training of a model will help you and the team maybe reprioritize that list. But having that contract of, we need to build this. These are what I'd like on the product level, like ABCD. And then the machine learning team or the engineering team going, B is effectively impossible. A is three months of work. C and D are a little easier. And working with them to prioritize that list is kind of a dialogue you'll have. And if you do this poorly, you'll end up with problems C and D that were especially interesting and that you could write a bunch of papers on being done. 
But the large ones that are actually, hey, can we do this within a minute or can we do this within five seconds to make a usable bird watching app? Those might not get done. So you you need to be advocating for the, the customer, the end product, and you need to be able to take input from the machine learning team to say, this is not possible in this amount of time, or this is particularly difficult, or maybe, sure, we could do this and it'll take four months. And I'm going to guess that we have a 50% chance of success. And that's, that's an interesting problem because you'll get that a lot. In the cases where I've had to do things with machine learning engineers or machine learning teams, the effort on the product side is very front loaded in what should we build? What order would I like it? Almost devoid um, of input from the machine learning team at the beginning. It's like, this is what business would like. And then you go back and forth and you talk and you discuss and you figure out the limitations of what you want compared to what engineering can build and hopefully get to a contract that you can have kind of across the company, right? It's like, we're going to go and we're going to work on these. And our parameters of success are attempting to build A, B, C, and D. And we'll be happy and we'll be successful as a team if we can do the kind of contract or do the process that we've agreed to, even if it doesn't work out because it's, it is variable. The, the other challenge I have is oftentimes ML is a horrible, horrible thing to start with. There are so many times where a good set of heuristics is actually far, far better than uh, a full blown model. And part of the benefit to having technical product managers is maybe you can look at something and say, okay, what is the like scrappiest like popsicle sticks and Elmer's glue method for us getting something out the door that might not be perfect and might not be interesting, but satisfies the business need. So knowing when not to use machine learning is also a pretty important skill. And you would hope that uh, the, the people you're working with and the, the case that you're making can help you actually pick ML when it's important and avoid it when it's not, because it is a, it's a fickle beast as far as getting it to work all the time. You said a lot of super interesting things in there, but I do really do want to highlight that last point, having had personal experience with this, where you have some problem that looks really hard on the surface. And yeah, being a machine learning person, you think, all right, these are the, these are the models we can use. Like we, we made some combination of an ensemble with like uh, with state of the art RNN, a second state of the art RNN, and then trying to add some diversity with a CNN with uh, embeddings. And then in the end, the model we used was after having hacked on that for like a month or so and not being able to get it to work, someone just said, I think we can do this in a rule-based way with, and that ended up being way more accurate than anything we could have done. And it was only put together in a week and it's, you can full and it's uh, fully transparent. So for sure, I agree that using knowing when exactly to use ML, it might actually be one of the most important things as both an engineer and as a PM. Yeah. And it, it is interesting too. You bring up a good point on the ability to kind of introspect a model or understand what's going on. It is incredibly difficult in many different circumstances to, um, to know what, what's going on. Um, and as a product manager, that's especially difficult because you're an engineer, right? And you look at, Hey, I've built this thing. This thing works. And I know the precision and recall, but now you got to go to marketing as a product manager 
and marketing's wondering why in this particular case does it not work? Like I have a client who's wondering why all of their stuff is failing because they're in this weird edge case. And you've got to be able to say like, we don't know, or let's go find out. And that conversation is, is far more difficult than if you have, Oh, I have a bunch of rules and I can just look at this customer and say, Oh, well this makes sense because you get to rule three. And for some reason, all of your stuff fails. And so there are plenty of circumstances where, where that introspection is, is important. I guess a a good example in the real world would be doing machine learning for radiology, which was one of the startups I was in. You go and you build a model and all it does is look at a CT scan and kind of circle lung nodules and say, you should biopsy these, or, or we think that these might be lung cancer. The challenge is the FDA, in order to approve something, really needs to know why a specific thing is circled. And so even if you get the perfect black box that has like far and away better performance than a radiologist would be, unless you can prove why it fails in the cases it fails, and you can help a physician be able to spot those and mitigate against them, you're going to completely fail on the business front, no matter how effective you are on the, no matter how effective you are on the machine learning front. So in some cases, the the business context involves being able to describe what you're doing. We see this in self-driving cars too, right? It's someone will be worse off because this model exists. And are we going to try to understand why it might fail or how it might fail and agree that that is a downside that we're like societally going to accept? Or must everyone be strictly better off by the introduction of this model, which is an insanely high bar and likely impossible to reach? Um, so those are, those are some of the challenges that you have, uh, when you're trying to communicate outside of engineering about the performance of a model. Yeah. And it's funny in the case of, I guess, both self-driving radiology specifically, where you hold the model to a standard that's so much farther above an individual radiologist or, or Uber driver and, the conclusion that you have to draw from that is because is because of the skin in the game, right? Where if you have a replacement radiologist, for lack of a better term, there's not really like one person you can blame or easily extract that out of the system. Whereas with if a normal radiologist makes a a gross mistake, you can simply just fire them. So like you said, it's all about the business context as, as a whole. For sure. And I think another challenge is um, where you actually deploy some of these radiology models is itself very important. Um, You'll have the FDA, for example, that says no one can be worse off through the introduction of this model because it's a very risk adverse agency. But you end up with places like Zimbabwe that have, I think, 10 radiologists. And so they're just happy to have anything that works because it's a difference of having no radiology support or some. And so if they're a little bit less risk adverse, then maybe it's easier to get approval in that country. So it is kind of challenging and, and also a little bit um, interesting on, on a societal level, right? It's like, are we going to trust these things um, and trust that in the aggregate, we're better off, but in the specific, we might be worse off. Yeah. And that's, again, connects back to the self-driving thing where we've seen recently how Surprisingly, I guess to me at least, the whatever 
transportation board or whatever it's called has been remarkably open to testing a lot of these uh, self-driving systems on the road. I mean, you you see Teslas with their level two-ish systems and people are just allowed to use them. And they're, I mean, in some place, even in some states, you have full-blown, like almost level four systems just driving around. So that's a pretty stark difference between the FDA and uh, whoever manages the those transport laws. Yeah. And I guess this is also an interesting um, interesting challenge that we see in a lot of different areas. You'll see like blockchain or crypto or Ethereum, right? It's like, as soon as we can have a contract in Ethereum, great. But we have to trust that at the legal system level. Or um, you have SpaceX going and launching rockets and it's all fine and dandy until someone gets hurt. And it used to be that NASA was doing that. So we'd all kind of backed it up as citizens. But if it's a private company, that's more challenging. Or we're launching a bunch of satellites. And are we happy that there are more satellites now, not really tied to a government? Not quite sure. And we'll see the same thing in, in self-driving cars or the same thing in, um, in, in radiology or the same thing in medicine in general. So it's a, it's a common problem, not just specific to ML, unfortunately, but it is a, it is a challenging space. And now to bring it back to, I guess, more, more, not more relevant, that was a relevant conversation, but uh, to more, to what you're doing now at, as a PM at Google. And something I found particularly striking is how many notable Google, ex-Google PMs there have been. I mean, Sundar Pichai himself, CEO of Google, has for a long time led all of product management for some of those orgs. Why do you think that this has been, that people from Google who have been product managers have been so successful after they've left those roles? It certainly is interesting. In my current role, more specifically, I actually am a technical program manager, um, just for clarification. But um, I work with a lot of of product managers across the org. And it, it is really interesting. Um, I would say that the one thing that Google really forces in, uh, in product management and in program management is consensus building. And it's a really interesting thing because if you have a good idea, no matter who you are, Google is very, very good at finding it, giving it engineers and getting it built. Um, almost to our detriment. Think about the number of times that like, Google Reader or an interesting program or product has come out and then been abandoned. I think that, that Google certainly has challenges with that. But the thing that is really good about it is if you hire smart people who come up with interesting ideas, it's very meritocratic in the sense that people will discuss it, people will prioritize it, people will put their weight behind it um, if it is a good idea. And it's interesting that pulling rank is not really a thing compared to other companies. And that allows you to very quickly find good ideas without uh, like the biggest person in the room kind of a problem. So when you look at, when we look at like technical, when we talked about technical risks or business risks at Google, we have fantastic engineers, uh, world-class engineers and a really good culture around engineering. So oftentimes the technical technical risks are a little bit smaller than they would be at other companies. Obviously that has a limit, but as a general rule, it's probably easier to build things at Google than it is elsewhere. Which means that a lot of the questions are not, can it be built? It's around what should we build? 
And that actually is much more of a, much more of a non-technical hat that product managers have to wear and around building consensus and about talking to customers and agreeing that this is what should be built or, or finding a need in the marketplace. So as soon as you leave Google, or as soon as you go and you find a product manager who's left and tried something new, all of a sudden you get a really interesting uh, hybrid of someone who's used to having to build consensus and someone who's used to having to be able to, through discussions with customers or through discussions with um, other business owners, find a need with the, I know it can be built. And I have a, hopefully a pretty good understanding on the technical side as to how challenging it would be or how long it would take to get my, my idea to market. So compare that to other software companies that are more waterfall oriented or other software companies that might have more of a hierarchy around product management. You can see where if you don't have to build consensus, all of a sudden that persuasiveness and that uh, ability to convince people to get on board with you atrophies as a skill. So maybe it's just that at Google or other companies that have a little bit more of a consensus building mechanism, those skills are honed and refined and sought after, uh, which makes you more successful if you were to leave. It's interesting you bring up the more meritocratic aspect of it. And thinking, uh, it actually reminds me of uh, an acronym that you introduced me to in college, the, the HIPPO, the highest paid person's opinion. And the way that you describe it, it seems that it's great that people don't really pull rank as much. And in many ways that a company as large as Google, that's actually an amazing feat. Do you think that's just in something that's in the culture and or it's actively, actively uh, curated? I think it's certainly in the culture. I think that the kind of Google philosophy for the longest time was, and it still is, it's like hire very, very, very smart people and they'll figure it out. And that has benefits and some detriments. A, a good example of where it's not so great is project tracking. There are so many different interesting and partially baked internal tools for things um, compared to if you were at like Atlassian, for example, there's one product management software that you do. There's not that many other options out there. So you, you sacrifice the easy unite around a thing to build aspect of a more hierarchically organized um, company in favor of faster iteration time and more willingness to try new things that you would get at Google. So I'm not really sure that it would be the best organization everywhere. For example, would you want Boeing going and letting people try to build consensus around interesting little like planes that they'd like to build. Probably not, right? You have to commit to a, we're going to build a 757 or we're going to build this particular thing because the upfront cost of being wrong is so high. So maybe it's just a, a mix of the types of problems that you can solve and the fact that you can iterate so fast on them, meaning that the, the sacrificing of consensus taking longer, but being faster to iterate on. Uh, it's just a, a more useful thing. But it, it is interesting too. I think that people can get stuck into a, um, oh, the Google way is the best way. A good example of this is like OKRs. A lot of people use OKRs now, but some of them use OKRs more because Google uses OKRs, not because they're a good fit for their organization. Um, or they miss some of the very important parts of it. Like they have to be objective and you have to be able to measure them, right? 
And so just because Google's culture works for Google does not mean it would work for everywhere else. And it doesn't necessarily mean that an arbitrary company will be better for having a more consensus oriented kind of a culture. So it, it is interesting, uh, but I've certainly enjoyed working there and it is a, it is a fun change. I like the dichotomy that you made a lot, especially with the comparison of between Google and Boeing. And in many ways, it makes a lot of sense because of their, because of how they, I guess, plan on make, seeing themselves make money in the future, where Boeing seems like it has no qualms of this, of saying, we are going to make really good planes and we're going to continue to do that. Whereas Google says, we have a good advertising business now, but we recognize that that might not always be there and we should essentially take moonshots to be able to keep on, keep on growing. And that, of course, leads to, I guess it's, a, it's two things like pulling on each other where the culture and for, makes that possible and also the culture is optimized for that where you see, I mean, in many ways, the moon, the term moonshot was something that if it wasn't made at Google, it was a term that was popularized by them with their things like Google X brain, deep mind, et cetera. For sure. Um, it is interesting trying to look at the macro scale and like the development of companies, because I feel like you end up with a lot of, um, you end up with like a life cycle of a company where you'll start, You'll have a bunch of, of go-getters who are not quite sure what their business model is. And then you hit a gold mine and wow, this makes a lot of money. And your stock price increases a lot. You all of a sudden have a lot of very valuable equity. And I think there becomes a little bit of an inflection point where is it easier for you as a company to take the risks in trying to find new business opportunities? Or is it easier for you to rely on startups and acquiring startups to go into that exploration for you? You can see this with like Facebook doing acquisitions of like Instagram uh, or, oh, it's, it's easier for us to take an existing user base and buy it than it is for us to uh, try 18 different types of social media apps and see what the next one will be on our own. And I, I think that Google's in an interesting spot where we do have those moonshots and we do work really hard at, uh, hey, this is an interesting thing. It's something that we have a, an unfair advantage and maybe in that we, we can build something that other people might not be able to build. But I wouldn't be surprised if we would also see large companies like Google eventually turn into a, um, Oh, let's go find things that already exist and let's bring them into the fold and make acquisitions. Um, especially when you get large enough that you have that option and you have the equity. Um, I think it becomes a little bit more, uh, more palatable. Maybe a good example of this is like, like Cisco. Cisco got fantastic at doing acquisitions. Really, really great. And you'd be acquired and all of a sudden you'd go and have new business cards the Monday after the acquisition and you'd be brought into the fold. And um, so even though Cisco hasn't necessarily come up with much on their own um, recently, they've been able to go and acquire businesses or be able to extend into areas they weren't already in because they were just really, really good at finding, uh, finding winners and bringing them into the fold. Yeah, and that concept of growth through M&A in many ways brings us 
to the hearings that uh, the tech antitrust hearings that we were so prominently displayed uh, was it last week, I think. Although that might that is probably a, a topic in itself for for another time. So to to bring it back to PM, one one question that I have, and probably a lot of other engineers have, looking at this is. It seems that there is so much needless complexity in the methodology that we see so often. So you have fib like story points have to be done in Fibonacci's, epics have to be sized in terms of t-shirts. You have all this other terminology that's super specific, like a spike means one thing. Yeah, like I said, epic story. Do you think that this is necessary? Like, why does it exist? Can't we just use simpler terms? I guess what's the what's the question behind the question of of all of this tracking is, is something to keep in mind. There's a how hard is this to build, and there's a what is the actual plan to build it. And I think that having people go and do on occasion a storyboard or, or Fibonacci points to figure out oh how how hard is this thing that has a value. Um, I think the challenge is. A little bit overfitting to a specific metric. It's like if you all of a sudden define success in your business as we got through this many points, then you're a little bit missing the mark there. Um, same thing we see with like OKRs. It's oh well, if you meet all of your KRs but you miss the objective, then maybe you checked sixty percent of the boxes or eighty percent of the boxes, but you completely missed the overarching goal, which was to make X amount of money or to be able to release a product on time. So. To the extent that a metric or to the extent that kind of a point or storyboarding is able to get the team on the same page and able to drive consensus around what should be done and agreement around how difficult it is, it's a very useful thing to have a situation like that or a system like that. Um, when it becomes your goal to fit within that system and the system starts to like control you in a way, uh, then maybe it's outliz- outlived its usefulness. I would say that some of the most awesome times working with engineers has been in cases where they know and they're able to articulate how long something should take without the need of processes like that because they're just really familiar with their stack and they're experts and they're fantastic at being able to estimate. And it's so much easier to go and say, how long should this take? And get a response saying, probably three weeks, maybe four, depending on complexity. Um, and then completely circumvent the need for it at all. Because if you can already trust the teams you work with and they've proven that they're able to estimate, then there's no reason to add extra complexity to it. And it's oftentimes just not worth it at all. But it does depend on the team. And the estimation, I think, is something, at least in traditional computer science, like undergrad education, estimating things is... Like nowhere is it ever mentioned, right? But it it seems like to be such a a skill that makes you like a linchpin developer, but yet it's so abstract of a concept and there's no, at least it seems like there's not a clear way to get better at it other than more experience. Do you think that there, do you think that that's wrong and that there are actually ways of being better at estimating? I would say one of the best things is actually 
having a really high level of trust in your team. If you as a, as a product manager hear from your engineers, this will take X amount of time and you have built up the trust to be able to both rely in their estimation, but also the willingness to defend it to higher level people in the org trying to push out the product, then you'll be far, far better off. And if you have that trust, you'll also avoid some of the downsides of everyone up the chain adding 20% padding to a project because they're afraid of delivering <laughs> like too slowly. Um, if you have everyone in the stack, like four layers deep, adding 20% to it, then <laughs> it gets incredibly challenging. And you can avoid a lot of that if you, if you are willing to trust people's estimates if you um, keep track of and you have retrospectives on well, what took longer than, than we thought, and we can maybe add that into our estimation, estimations next time. Um, those are all, all really useful tools. I think another interesting aspect of it is having a open culture around things going wrong or things taking longer than expected. It's like no one is planning on or intends for something to take less time or sorry, more time than, than expected. Sometimes it just happens. Sometimes delays happen and how you handle those delays as a team has a lot to do with how successful and how trustworthy uh, you find others on your team moving forward. If you uh, blame people or if you go and um, put all the blame on a specific division or a specific group or a specific team, when something doesn't work, then you're going to be like no better off and everyone's just going to have a bad taste in their mouth. But if you go and you say, hey, we've found delays, we understand what the delay is, we've qualified the delay, and we go and communicate it up the stack, and everyone just says, hey, sounds good, and we agree with it. And and we try to make sure that it doesn't happen again, and we have blameless postmortems, for example, then you'll hopefully avoid a lot of the downside of delays in that people will just pad more next time. I've never thought about the what actually happens when at each layer, the PM is just adding 20% to the estimate, I can see how, yeah, how that can get quite unruly after a while. This is also where it's really nice having technical product managers because you can better tell what is actually difficult. It's so much easier to convince a product manager who's technical that the thing that they've asked for is hard because there's just a little bit more experience there. And it's unreasonable to expect someone who's not technical to immediately agree with you when you say something's incredibly difficult on the technical side. So I think that there's a little bit of a, of a give and take there, but it all comes back to trust, right? If you have product yeah. managers who've done coding or have done software engineering in the past, then when someone says this is really hard because we have to migrate a database, you understand what that means. And you're able to like build that into your worldview as far as the feature goes. Uh, and you're being able to defend it and articulate it and communicate it uh, effectively up the chain. Yeah. And this is something like we've discussed before, it's in machine learning, this is amplified just to the nth degree where you can say, okay, like as a machine learning person, I say, I am 99% sure that I can get this model to be 85% accurate. But if we need it to be 90% accurate, that's going to take like five times as long as to get it just to 85 rather than to 90. And that's yeah, it's incredibly hard to explain why it's the case, but you just know that 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 is that that's the literal truth. Even things like overfitting or 
kind of trying to, uh, to p-hack. Things like that are really challenging to explain without a little bit of a technical understanding. As you'll, you'll, have a, you'll have a model out in the wild and it's reading in data, it's making decisions. And you say, wait a minute, if you filter by specifically like this column, you're going to end up with, oh, well, this, this particular case works really, really well. It's like, well, sure. But just because it works really well doesn't mean that you should necessarily take action on that, right? We would expect outliers in the performance of a model just as a, as a matter of course. So also trying to defend against misuse of results uh, is a really good competency to have as a, as a product manager on, a, on an ML team. Yeah, and that competent, yeah, like you said, the competency with just overall knowing statistics, knowing what, yeah, what overfitting is, and even to the level of specificity of knowing what metrics your engineers are telling you. I personally, there was one case where they meant precision, but they ended up saying uh, accuracy. And these seem like synonyms, I mean, to a lay person, just listening to other people talk about it, but that's, uh, it's something that's completely different. It's not even like you're optimizing for something completely different. And that resulted in just like three weeks of wasted work, essentially. And this is also where um, the value of a product manager is oftentimes in communication. It's the ability to take and... Yes, when I talk to engineers, I use this vocabulary and this amount of shared context, and we have effective communication. And then when you go up to marketing, though, and you explain like accuracy or you explain like this thing or that thing, um, being able to switch hats, being able to adjust how you're communicating and being able to fit the audience is, is really important. Because if you go and you always use jargon and you forget the way to actually explain it to a layperson what you're doing, then oftentimes you're missing out on an opportunity to refine your thoughts and better, better make sure what you're building is useful. So that's a good example of why it's sometimes useful to have um, product management as an intermediary or as like a uh, source of knowledge and kind of communication lin linchpin just so that you can go and interface between these other groups without everyone being confused at what people are saying because they don't know the, the right words to use. It's, it seems like one of those uh, tiny things that ends up actually being super important. And communication in general is another one of those estimation, ab seemingly abstract skills. How do you approach getting better at communication as being that it's such an important part of your role? One of the most interesting books I read was... Um, Thanks for the feedback, but it had a, it had a really interesting kind of a takeaway, which was your best feedback will come oftentimes from people who are very bad at giving feedback. And, uh, it, it makes sense. Like giving feedback is a skill and coaching people is a skill and not everyone has that skill, but when something goes sideways or when you have a problem or when you have a success, being able to understand what people mean and what you can take away from that is a really valuable thing even if the person giving you that feedback is not particularly great at, um, at being a coach. I feel like communication falls into one of those buckets. You communicate with so many different people and you communicate in so many different like ways or methods 
And you'll very rarely get direct, excellent feedback about how well you were at communicating in a thing. You'll get second order effects like, oh, my email was, was responded to, or, oh, I guess I got my project approved. But very rarely is that specifically, did you communicate well? It's you're trying to kind of weed through what happened and infer how good you were at communicating. So one of the things that I've, I've done or tried to do to make sure that I'm actually getting better about communicating is whenever you can ask for very specific feedback on a particular thing. Um, if once a quarter you're sending out a really, really big announcement to a bunch of people, use that opportunity to actually go and put the draft by some people. So like, Hey, do you understand what this is? Or I know you don't know this project, but do you feel like you could understand or comprehend what I'm trying to get across here? Or in other circumstances, you'll go and you'll want to ask just very kind of abruptly, Hey, what's the most critical piece of feedback you have in this thing I've put together or this project plan I have. Um, so trying to get people who otherwise would not give direct feedback to feel able to, and willing to give critical feedback on artifacts you've made is a, is a really useful thing. And then another aspect is just stepping back and making sure that you can communicate a thing to a bunch of different audiences. Uh, there's like the classic, uh, interview question, explain how TCP IP works to your grandmother. And it's like, wait a minute, right? You got to step back and you got to say, okay, no one knows what a packet is. How do you, how do you abstract a packet? Oh, a packet's an envelope. And you go through the process of like, oh, we're sending envelopes through the mail and we're eventually making it all work and we're fault tolerant to a degree. And you can explain that to your grandmother and actually make it make sense. And then if you swivel a chair and you're talking to an engineer, you can get more into the depths of uh, the intricacies of how it actually works. But the fact that you have an idea and you have an understanding of a system and you've convinced yourself and you've also convinced other groups that know different things that they now understand it, at least in part, um, getting that feedback is really, really useful um, and fun. I think if you enjoy communication, it's always nice being able to take something and, and distill it down into a, uh, a nugget of wisdom that anyone can learn from any, um, any place. Yeah, being able to look at at those types of skills where at the first level of competency, you're just trying to, you're trying to just not make any mistake at all. <laughs> and, but then once you can rise above that, it, you can look at it from both what you're doing and like the meta level on top of that, of how can I do this better in the moment? And that's when you can kind of, it seems like what you're saying is you can kind of release the, the anxiety of, previously just like of trying not to fail and instead try to find the joy of being better is the best way I can put it. Yeah. I think it also helps you, um, helps you understand when you don't understand something. I think one of my best, uh, like favorite stories from one of Richard Feynman's books was, um, talking about, Hey, he had a, a freshman come up and ask about, a particular aspect of quantum mechanics and finally was like, okay, I'll, I'll go and I'll prepare a, a freshman or a sophomore lecture on the topic. And after a week or so he was like, yeah, we weren't really able to distill this down into a thing that I could give as a sophomore lecture. And I guess that means we don't understand it yet. And that was a really interesting insight. It was, if you, if you can't really explain it to an arbitrary audience, um, then, then maybe you don't really know it as well as you think you know it. 
And that worked really well for quantum mechanics because it's effectively all math, right? But in, in other scenarios, it's also useful to just step back. Can I describe this? If not, maybe I need to go back and make sure that I'm actually doing what I'm doing. Uh, like the accuracy versus precision, for example. If you actually talk to a couple different people and you try to explain what you're doing without using jargon, then maybe you would have caught that a little earlier, right? Um, and so that's a good way of, of preventing, preventing lost time. Yeah, that dichotomy between knowing the information and understanding the meaning of it is, like you said, something completely different, especially having, at least in my experience of school, you're, you're only really re- rewarded for that surface level knowledge rather than the true understanding because, I mean, such short timelines and classes, but what ends up really mattering is getting that understanding and when you're just trained for so long of like you can just let this information go after a while you don't actually have to know it it's you're you realize that all the habits that you adopted to get you successful in school have to be revamped in a lot of ways towards more having yeah like you said being able to explain things extremely simply just to know if you know it yeah, I think this comes back down to, um, and we've had a couple of conversations in, in different forums about this, but reasoning from base principles and like convincing yourself that you know something like all the way from the top to the bottom. Um, the downside is, I mean, life is short and you have to <laughs> use abstractions in certain cases. And um, it's actually been really fun as a, as a program or a product manager going in, being able to decide that you don't need to know something. It's like you've, you've put together a system or a program or a team and it's awesome being able to say, I don't need to know how this works. Not because I'm not curious about it, not because I don't want to know how it works, but because my value is in finding a different thing that no one knows and learning that because now you've actually shored up a weakness on the team. Um, so it it is interesting and it's, it's challenging because you want to know everything and you want to be able to spend the time to understand everything, but uh, end of the day, that's that's not feasible. So being able to prioritize at some point um, does become necessary. Yeah, for sure. And this is something that I even mentioned that was brought up in uh, the last episode that I recorded, where I originally had read stories of from like the the legendary programmers of years past. And back then, you were able to know pretty much everything, like literally the full stack, and understand every single part. But now, if you try to do that, like it, you can't, unless you're some sort of super genius like Jeff Dean, who's able to find a find some server bug that originated from a supernova passing by. And one of the heuristics that was uh, given to me was you should just focus on, first of all, like the level at which you operate in the stack, and second of all, the levels above and below, and anything else you probably just don't need to know. This is also where um, corporate culture comes into it. Uh, I think that even before I joined Google, there was a um, an explanation that Apple, for example, puts a lot of value on domain expertise. Like the person who knows this aspect of the system knows it incredibly well, knows it just forwards and backwards and can invent and can articulate and can build things in that space. And the fact that the Apple culture values that is actually a really, really strong 
uh, and, and beneficial aspect of their corporate culture. Um, whereas if you go to other areas, there will be more of a, um, Hey, you're like valuable for what you've done in the past couple of years, right? Or the past like two years. It's like, how much money did you bring in? Uh, that would be more like a sales culture. And so unless you've been performant or unless you've been doing something that's been in the news or in the know recently, then maybe that culture values you a little bit less. But if you end up in a situation where you don't value that domain expertise, then you can end up really, really hurting yourself because you won't know what you have until it's gone. So maybe, maybe product management in a way is just the ability to protect domain expertise be able to abstract the kind of overview and knowledge and communication of an institution without, uh, without undervaluing the teams and the people who build it and have the expertise to actually make something happen. Uh, yeah. That last part is uh, such a great point of being able to bring those, bring all those things that we talked about together into how it relates back to, to program management. Talking with you all over these years and even just now, it's striking how how good you are at keeping about not getting too lost in the, de- in the specific details and always being able to bring it back to where it fits in the bigger picture. Do you think that's something that you developed in through your time of being a PM or what do you think that you always had that? I think it takes practice. I think that um, being able to go and um, just be curious about everything and try to understand like the different aspects of a system is, is a really fun, fun process. I think that the challenge that I've always had is being too much of a generalist versus being a specialist. It's like at some point you want to Uh, provide value and certain people provide value by being generalists, right? It's like this person goes and fixes something. They go in, they understand the problem, they come up with a solution and they ship it rather quickly. Like a, like a consultant would be a good example of a, of a generalist. And then you have the specialists who go and know a domain very specifically. And uh, it's challenging because product management, again, you can't build much on your own you certainly can't fix a very intricate problem on your own. But the the other side that people don't talk about a lot is it's hard to know if you're doing well because your projects are all very long scoped and iterative and it's incredibly easy to hide. Uh, it's like, Hey, like a VP or an executive, when you hire them, it's like expect them to learn for three, four months before doing even the like minorest of things because there's just such a large amount of learning and just development that you need before you can be effective in that. Um, so in my case, it's challenging because you want to be um, able to have a lot of stuff in your mind and you want to be able to know a little bit about everything, but that comes at a price where it's hard to know what your impact is. And it's hard to know, Hey, is this a good product manager? How would you judge a product manager without integrating over anything less than a year or two? And how do you get good, firm feedback on how well you're doing? Well, if you're an engineer, it's a little more clear, right? It's like, hey, it compiles, it runs. In the case of ML, right? You have these success criteria and you've achieved what you were looking for. Um, You get that direct feedback. So being willing to kind of suspend 
immediate measurement of your success, be able to integrate over a little bit longer of an experience, be able to talk to teams and get insight on how you're helping them or not helping them um, are all pretty important aspects of, um, I think, being a good product manager or being a good generalist. Awesome. And uh, we're getting towards uh, to wrap time to wrap this up. So we'll end with, uh, first of all, is there anything else that you want to convey to the listeners? Uh, no, that's fine. These are questions, so the, to, so the audience is familiar, questions that I'll be asking to each guest at the end. First of all, how do you recharge outside of work? I read and go on long walks. Um, I am probably one of Audible's best customers, and I enjoy trying to polish off a book or two every month. Um, so I usually just put in headphones, find an interesting book, and do long hikes. Secondly... What text editor do you use? Although I guess this is not the best question given that you're not coding for most of your job. More frequently Google Docs, but uh, for, coding, I, <laughs> for coding, I use Vim, actually. Um, I do a lot of Raspberry Pi and other kind of side projects. And the universality of Vim and the fact it's installed most everywhere uh, makes it really, really good for that. Um, I have used other things, but I pretty much exclusively use them now. Yeah. Amazing. I, you were probably one of the first people I think to introduce me to it. And now I just can't go to anything else. (laughs) Yeah. It's just ingrained in my fingers. If I start typing something in another text editor, I'll have like J's and yeah, (laughs) J's K's Q's all over the place. Super, super psyched that, uh, so many programs actually support them. He bindings too. So like all of my email, Vim key bindings, yeah, um, yeah. whenever I can, I turn them on. So, so yeah, I've, I've bit the bullet on that. <laughs> and next, what book or books do you most often recommend to other people? Both could be technical, non-technical. Um, for non-technical, I think the book that I would love to become required reading is um, Better Angels of Our Nature by Steven Pinker. I think that it's interesting realizing that in almost every possible dimension, life seems to be getting easier and better. And I think that in the day-to-day, it's easy to find a bunch of problems or easy to find where things are not great or less performant. And then stepping back and going, oh, wait a minute. You're just in a far more peaceful society and world than you used to be in. And you have air conditioning. And... Rockefeller didn't. So at some point being able to step back and look in the micro and say, yes, humankind is making progress and that should be uplifting. Uh, it's just a really interesting, um, interesting th- thing to keep in mind. For a technical book, I'll include like product management as a, as a technical discipline here, although that might not be the spirit of the thing. I would say Crucial Conversations is a really good book that I would recommend people read. It's mostly about identifying conversations that are especially challenging and being able to make sure that you have the kind of psychological safety kind of built around who you're conversing with and the fact that you're able to first listen and then be understood and 
just how to navigate a lot of really challenging discussions you'll have with other people on your team or in relationships or in business context. Uh, it's a really, really good book on, on strategies around that. Awesome. Just uh, two more. What's the best movie or TV show you've seen recently? I, uh, I watched The Great Escape with a friend that had not seen it recently about World War II account of a bunch of allied prisoners trying to escape a prison in Germany and just the inventiveness and the creativity involved of, uh, of making that work was enjoyable. It reminded me of, of like Apollo 13, the just, Hey, we're trying to figure out different ways of solving problems. And we only have a, a finite set of resources. And I just enjoy, enjoy movies like that. Cool. Yeah. I haven't seen that. I'll have to check that out for sure. And then lastly, stealing this straight one straight from Peter Thiel, what important truth do very few people agree with you on? Well, if I had a fantastic answer to that, I'd probably be a more successful person than I am now. Um, <laughs> interesting thing I've been thinking about recently is um, I think that universal basic income will be a, um, a thing that will likely pass in the United States in the next probably decade. Um, interesting. I think that this will have the effect of um, being a very, very large transfer of wealth to landowners because I don't see a way in which the um, willingness of people who now get basic income every month to spend that on rent could not increase. So I think it'll just be uh, a, a large jump in the amount of prices that you'll have um, for rent across the country because all of a sudden people's willingness to pay will increase pretty homogeneously across the society. Um, so there might be ways to be able to like make money over the next decade or so. Um, if you believe this to be true. Um, and it brings with it some other interesting things. It's like, first of all, would you go and would you, um, need to accompany it with some type of across the country rent control to be able to limit this, this transfer of wealth. And I don't know what that would, would necessarily do for the nation, but, um, that would be an interesting, interesting thought. And then the other side of it would be, are there places that become far more hospitable uh, to live in, in a world like that? That's one thing I've been thinking about. Beyond that, uh, again, I would be pretty wealthy if I had great answers to this question, but that's one I've been talking <laughs> about. No, that is great. And it's, uh, it is super interesting to think about. I've been pondering about what the impacts of universal basic income have been as well. I mean, we're basically already doing that policy and uh, we'll see how it plays out. It'll definitely be very interesting times in the future. Well, this has been a really, really great conversation and I hope the technical issues weren't too bad. Jordan, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Every single time I talk to you, I always come away with like a million ideas. So it's always great to catch up. No, this has been great. Thanks for having me, Charlie. Thank you so much for listening. It is a huge honor to be able to bring you these conversations. 
If you want to learn more about anything mentioned in this podcast, visit our website, mlengineered.com to view detailed show notes and sign up for our email list, where every week I send out the best of what I've found that will help you become a better machine learning researcher, engineer, or entrepreneur. That's mlengineered.com. Oh, 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 oh,